This is Yudah Cohen welcoming you to the 40th episode of The Next Stage. I hope you've been enjoying our podcast and the perspectives we offer on issues pertaining to Jewish liberation in this unique and exciting chapter of our people's story. One of our goals for this podcast and for Vision Magazine in general is to really encourage listeners to think outside the box and to step out of your political comfort zones in order to start relating to contemporary issues and current events through an understanding of Israel's worldview and historic mission. If you've been listening to this show long enough, I hope you can recognize that the challenges facing the Jewish people in our generation are really not that overwhelming when compared to what the children of Israel have already overcome in the last hundred years. The ability to appreciate what's already been accomplished, the ingathering of our exiles, the revival of our ancient language, the liberation of our country from British rule, and more, should really strengthen us to pursue and achieve the next objectives of Jewish liberation. And I hope this show has helped you learn not to limit yourselves to the options generally presented to us by political leaders in the media, but to actually figure out what you believe to be the ideal, and to practically move reality and history towards that ideal. Don't limit your thinking to the ideas and systems that already exist. We can, for example, acknowledge that capitalism as a mode of production and exchange is better and more moral than systems like feudalism or slave-based economies that came before, while at the same time recognizing that humanity can do better, and that the children of Israel might have come back to life and returned to the stage of history after thousands of years in order to show the world a new way of organizing society that meets humanity's needs, that expresses our true deep inner unity, and that helps us to actualize our full potentials for living productive and fulfilling lives even better than capitalism. Or when it comes to solving our conflict with the Palestinians, it means breaking free from the narrow two-state paradigm forced on us for generations and recognizing that although no solution can currently solve our conflict, not two states, not one state, not federation, not confederation, not the status quo, so long as the relationship dynamics between our peoples are as bad as they are, we should identify the outcome we consider to be most just and most ideal and work towards creating the conditions to make that outcome attainable and successful in practice. Pragmatism should be utilized as a means to achieve our goals, never as a deterrent from pursuing them. As someone who supports a single state between the river and the sea that's deeply Jewish at the structural level, yet at the same time democratic and inclusive of non-Jews, I appreciate the need to first build mutual trust and improve Jewish-Palestinian relations in order to create the necessary conditions for us to live together as partners who genuinely care about what's important to the other. A very common mistake I often hear expressed by quote-unquote pragmatic advocates for a two-state solution is the belief that a one-state reality would essentially take the current dynamics that exist between Israelis and Palestinians and simply force those onto a shared political system in a single state. That assumption clearly ignores the fact that any genuine attempt to truly solve our conflict would require a process that allows us to build trust and improve how we each experience and relate to one another. When these skeptics speak dismissively of a one-state solution, they express an assumption that Israelis and Palestinians are incapable of changing the roles we play in each other's stories. An assumption that's symptomatic of only being able to see the other through our own narrow generic narratives. There's actually an interesting quote by Franz Fanon that always makes me think of Israeli two-staters. Fanon writes in Black Skin, White Masks, and I quote, 
sometimes people hold a core belief that is very strong. When they are presented with evidence that works against that belief, the new evidence cannot be accepted. It would create a feeling that is extremely uncomfortable, called cognitive dissonance. And because it is so important to protect the core belief, they will rationalize, ignore, and even deny anything that doesn't fit in with the core belief. It's unlikely that Fanon had this specific issue in mind, especially given the fact that he died in 1961, but it still fits. A significant part of our problem is that for the last few decades, Israel's weakest and most westernized sectors have monopolized our relationship with the Palestinians. This camp might be highly successful when it comes to high-tech and defense and arguably even our relationship with the West, but because it has dominated Israeli society since the establishment of our state, it tends to frequently veer from its lane and encroach into areas and issues best left to other camps. The best and clearest example of this has been this sector's monopolization of peacework, which it's completely unqualified for. In fact, the Israelis best equipped to engage and improve Israel's relations with Palestinians and other Semitic peoples in the region are those Jews most firmly rooted in their identity and homeland and most fully living the aspirations of the Jewish people. And if we were to actually achieve real progress and reach a situation where Palestinians no longer feel oppressed and Jews no longer feel threatened, and we were to actually begin to care about what's important to one another, Palestinian political factions would most likely spread out across Israel's political spectrum and make alliances with like-minded Jewish parties rather than remain in a joint list that combines Islamic leaders and leftists and nationalists united in their shared sense of feeling othered and oppressed as Palestinians. And these are just a couple examples to illustrate the point that if we hope to advance Jewish liberation to the next stage, we need to be able to entertain fresh ideas and have new conversations. That's actually a crucial part of how we become free. This means taking the time before formulating an opinion on any particular issue to think about some very important questions, like what are the goals of Jewish history, what's already been achieved, what remains to be accomplished, and what obstacles stand in the way, in order to better contextualize whatever issues we're engaging within the larger context of Israel's broader story. In any case, we put a lot of work into this podcast and really hope it's useful in helping listeners develop a vision for what Jewish liberation can look like today. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to the Next Stage podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a positive rating and review because that can really help us spread these ideas to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, if you're interested in supporting the show or sponsoring an episode of The Next Stage or of our new podcast on the weekly Torah portion, please contact us by heading over to visionmag.org and clicking contact. Now with all that out of the way, I'd like to invite you to enjoy our 40th episode featuring a conversation with celebrated author Yossi Kleiner-Levy on whether it's best to impose our vision on reality or to impose reality onto our vision. This is Yudaha Kohen of the Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. 
With me on the show this week is a very special guest, someone who I'm very excited to speak to about some of the issues we generally tackle at Vision Magazine. And that is Yossi Klein-Alevi, author, activist, and thought leader in this unique chapter of Jewish history. Yossi Klein-Alevi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Yehuda. Good to be with you. On the surface, you and I appear to share a very similar trajectory. First of all, and probably most importantly, we're both from the same Hebrew tribe. We're both from the tribe of Levi. Uh, I'm actually a Kohen from the priestly sub-tribe within Levi, but we both share that uh, tribal affiliation. Good to be working with you again. Yeah, likewise. Uh, we're both born and raised in New York City, I think, All right? Is that correct? You were born in New York? Brooklyn, New York, Borough Park, if you've heard of it. I've heard of Borough Park. Where are you from? I grew up in a neighborhood called Yorkville, which doesn't exist anymore. The old German neighborhood. When I was growing up, it was mostly Irish and Albanian. And now it's just been gentrified into the Upper East Side. I think you were also a Beitari, correct? I was. Were you in Beitar? I found my way to Beitar at the age of 15. I was expecting to join a Jewish gang. You know, I grew up with kids who, you know, there were Irish gangs and Albanian gangs and black gangs. And I thought Beitar would be a Jewish gang, which is not what it turned out to be exactly. I, I didn't find it very fulfilling. But uh, later on, uh, I joined the Jewish Defense League, uh, as you okay. did. There you found your Jewish gang. Right, eventually, right. Um, although that also wasn't really what I expected. You know, when I joined the JDL, I, I was probably, more than anything else, looking just for a, a great experience to one day uh, be a great chapter of my story. But it really did change my life, and it really did change the story I had been living in. You know, I had been a very rebellious teenager. If somebody were to write about my life growing up in New York, uh, that would be a great story. And JDL was really my only way into the Jewish world, I think, at that point. And uh, Baruch Hashem, it, it's been a great trajectory since then, but that was really the only entry point that probably would have worked for me being who I was at 19, 20 years old. But we share that in common. And, and we both made Aliyah. We both ascended back to the land of Israel. We're both involved in peace work today, although I imagine we approach that very differently. And, and I think we both tend to look at the different camps or socio-political tribes within Israeli society and the broader Jewish world. And for the most part, make an effort to recognize the value of each and where each camp contributes to the overall identity and makeup of the Jewish people. Would you say that's true about yourself? Yeah. Very much so. My approach to uh, most Jewish problems is to, is to ask what is, the, what is the way that we can solve this uh, and uh, ensure that we keep at least the minimal cohesiveness um, for the Jewish people. Because our most basic unity is so fragile right now. And under so much strain, under political, religious, cultural strain, that my greatest fear and my, in a, in a sense, my deepest political Jewish commitment is ensuring the viability of the project known as the Jewish people. Right, that's interesting. I think I see a lot of deep unity in our people, despite a lot of the differences that are expressed at the political level and the, the socio-cultural level. I think deep down there's an intrinsic, maybe even a primordial uh, unity that I tend to count on. That might be a little bit adventurous on my part. When did you make Aliyah? About a month after 9-11. So that's 19 years ago. So in terms of Jewish unity, 
Mm -hmm. uh, that was a very good period. It was a terrible period in terms of what we were going through in Israel. But uh, we were very united. And thank God we've been more or less united, at least on, on, on our ability to go to war. Mm -hmm. uh, and I made Aliyah in the summer of 1982. And uh, it was the beginning of the first Lebanon War. And we were torn against each other during war. It was the war that was dividing us. Uh -huh. And that was a great trauma. And uh, I uh, was a journalist. Uh, I was working in those years as a, as a journalist. And uh, when someone threw a grenade into a Peace Now rally, uh, I ran down to, to report on it. And I saw the pools of blood that were, were still on the pavement. And it turned out, of course, to have been a far-right Jew who had thrown the grenade. So, and then living through the Rabin assassination. So I, I don't take our, our most uh, minimal cohesion uh, for granted. And I certainly uh, don't rely on, um, on mystical ideas mm -hmm. for political problems. I, I, I resonate very deeply with mystical ideas uh, in my in my spiritual life. So even though I think we obviously do share a lot in common, uh, I think we've also reached some very different conclusions over the years. Uh, you also self-identify as part of Israel's political center, correct? Pardon. You're right. And, and I probably represent anything and everything but the political center. So I'm actually, I'm really excited for us to have this conversation. I have read a couple of your books and I've heard you speak and I see you as a man of vision. And that's important. That's important here because I think Israeli political leaders and the Jewish world in general has for the last few decades suffered from a lack of vision. Uh, we often pursue policies based on external pressures or short-term interests that don't appear to always be guided by a clear idea for where we as a people want to go. So one thing I wanna ask you before we get into questions of details and policies is how would you define if at all, the purpose of Jewish history? like, And where does the state of Israel fit into that purpose? Meaning what itch of Jewish history is this state meant to scratch? In 30 seconds or 45 seconds? Let's try 45. Uh, the purpose of Jewish history as I understand it is to attest to, with our story, mm -hmm. to attest to God's presence in history. And... With our story, I mean, first of all, our survival through the centuries, mm -hmm. uh, the message that we've carried, which is the oneness of God, and uh, by extension, the oneness of all of life, mm -hmm. uh, beings uh, created in the image of God. The unity uh, of creation. The ideas that we have, first of all, that, that there is a God and that there is a creation, and we, are, we have been created, and we are created in the image of God. And the Jewish story sees the world as a story, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say there's an author, mm -hmm. uh, there's a story, and the story has a purpose. The story has a, a progression. And uh, it begins in creation. It, it, it has a peak moment with the exodus from Egypt, which is not only the birth of the Jewish people, but the birth of freedom in, in humanity. Uh, and it will culminate, uh, God willing, in the uh, messianic moment, whatever that is. 
and mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I believe very deeply mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in the messianic time, but I'm an agnostic about how that's going to happen and, and, uh, what, and what that means. I think we have a, uh, a key role to play, a key role, not the key role, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in the quickening of human history and in, in human evolution, spiritual evolution very much in the spirit of Rav Kook, I'm in that sense. And what role the land of Israel, the state of Israel plays is that this is our platform. This is the arena from which the Jewish people speaks to the world. Uh, For 2000 years, we we were scattered among the nations, but we didn't speak to the world in a coherent way. We were speaking mostly to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, compare the difference between Tanakh and Talmud. Talmud is an internal Jewish conversation. Tanakh turned out to be a, a human, a world conversation. And uh, when we are in the land of Israel, we speak to the world. And now we're back. And the question is, what do we have to say? Right. I think that was extremely, extremely well said. You know, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Everything you just said is actually my understanding of the Pasuk in Yeshayahu, Amzu Like this nation have I created myself to, to say my praise. Meaning that the story of the Jewish people, the adventure of the children of Israel throughout history actually attests to the fact that there is an author to the story. And, uh, and attests to the fact that we are all at the source really one. That there is a unity of creation, and that we're all part of one organic whole. And I think that is ultimately revealed to the world through the adventure of the children of Israel in history. There we have it. Yeah. So far, we're in agreement. So far, we're in agreement. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, one thing I remember you mentioning in your book, uh, Like Dreamers, and please correct me if I'm not remembering correctly. It's been a few years. But I, I remember you writing that the atmosphere in Israel following the Six-Day War is that Jewish history had found its happy ending. And that since that war, Israeli society has been living in the partial successes and partial failures of all the rival Zionist ideological tendencies. Am I remembering the words correctly? Sums it up very well, yeah. Okay, so the, the way I'd understand this is that Zionism actually ended in 1967. And obviously that's a semantic discussion. The way I'm defining Zionism is as a very specific political movement that existed from the 1880s to 1967. I think once we achieved uh, Jerusalem, Zion, Zionism essentially succeeded. And I think that since the Six Day War, the Jewish people have been ready for something new. I think that we need a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess and to use the conditions created by Zionism success to identify and achieve the next objectives of Jewish history. And for me, that requires a a transition, maybe a psychological transition from defense to offense, from a narrow and particularist Jewish nationalism to a uniquely Hebrew universalism that really focuses on why the Jewish people came back to life, what we're meant to contribute to humanity, and how we can use the conditions created by Zionism to succeed in that mission. Now, I know that you're agnostic when it comes to what our exact role is. You said you're agnostic when it comes to what our exact role is in accelerating history. 
but does any of that resonate with you? I'm wary of it for uh, for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is one is I've heard too much over the years from the uh, settlement movement mm-hmm. about post-Zionism and thank you Zionism very much, but we're, the secular phase is over and now it's time for the spiritual phase. Mm-hmm. And frankly, what I've seen coming out of the settlement movement spiritually is uh, is very is very much not impressive. And the, the universal language that, that, that some people in, in the movement have used, I won't mention names, but some of the prominent leaders who uh, will quote Ralph Cook and use universal uh, um, big leaf, really, for, for a very chauvinistic uh, approach that is intended to satisfy all of our needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pretend to honor the needs of, of, of our neighbors uh, without really listening to our neighbors, without taking them into account. Um, the, the, um, the, other, the other piece of this that really worries me mm-hmm. is that the, the Zionist movement promised not only to return us to the land of Israel, but to the community of nations. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to normalize Jewish faith. Now, in, in religious Zionist circles, normalization was once something that was applauded, and now it's seen as, um, as best a lesser goal, if not a betrayal of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of normalization is very much, I'd say, the Ben-Gurion uh, understanding, which is that we would be externally normalized in our relations with the nations. We would be a nation among nations in the international community. We would be internally exceptional. We would be aiming toward creating a, uh, a, an, an exemplary society. Um, I get very nervous when we start playing with post-Zionism because what it tends to mean is that normalization is, is irrelevant. And I think that my messianic understanding hinges deeply on the normalization of our relations with the world. So there's, so there's that aspect, which, uh, which really worries me. And, I, and I'll add a third caveat uh, to what you said. And that is I'm very wary of um, self-aggrandizement, mm-hmm. very wary of the Jewish people patting ourselves on the back. We have so much to teach the world. Uh, look it up. We're so we're uh, aren't we marvelous? Uh, and uh, in some ways, I think we are. In other ways, I think we're not. Uh, in some ways, we have things to teach the world. In other ways, we have a lot to learn from the world. Uh, and uh, in my own religious life, I have learned from uh, Hindu saints. I've learned from Catholic monastics, Sufi monks. Uh, I don't feel that it's the Jewish people that has to teach the world uh, and that it's an entirely one-way street. And I know in my own life, it has not been that way. So there you have three caveats. Right. I, I want to address them. And if I'm able to put your mind at ease, please let me know. And if not, also please let me know. First of all, I just want to deal with your third caveat for a second. My weariness on your weariness, I suppose, regarding self-aggrandizement is that I think if we have a role to play, we can't shy away from it. Now, I agree with you that it's not a one-way street and it can't be a one-way street and to look at it as one is counterproductive. 
but I do think that we have an important historic role to play and we shouldn't shy away from playing that role. I think it's a very revolutionary role. I think to a certain extent, humankind depends on it. And uh, I, I don't think we're doing anyone any favors by shying away from it. I do agree with you. And uh, I, don't, I think that we need to explore that role but with humility. Okay. And, um, and generally, uh, that kind of language mm -hmm. uh, reinforces uh, a, um, a Jewish self-centeredness mm -hmm. that uh, really reminds me, if anything, of the uh, biblical character Yosef in his more immature uh, years when he needed to be the center mm -hmm. of and, and and he needed his his brothers to recognize just how great he was. And what, when you look at Yosef, uh, who is my favorite biblical character, when you look at him in his mature years, uh, he is actually, he actually does become the center. He does become this figure who everyone bows down to, and yet you see in his relationship with his brother's humility. So I, I want to respond to some of the things you said, because a, a lot of them actually speak to me very deeply. My teachers, my rabbis, are uh, the students of Rav Tziyuda HaKohen Kuk, and I'm myself, am a teacher at Mechon Meir, if you're familiar with the institution. So I've experienced the frustration not with a lack of interest in universalism or the universalism that's supposed to arrive after the nationalism, but in an abstractness. My frustration is that I don't see enough efforts within that camp, let's call it the Rav Kook camp, to define what universalism actually looks like and what our universal role is. And I agree with you that there are definitely figures in that world who use universalist language on occasion, but seem to be simply reinforcing or nationalist aspirations without any regard for the aspirations of our neighbors or others in the world. That's true, but I'm hoping that we can solve that. And part of that means actually having these conversations, actually trying to think about what the Jewish people came home after 2000 years to do, what we're here for. I don't think it's just for ourselves. I know that every time in history that the Jewish people have had power, we've influenced the world in a very positive way. I don't think this generation should be any different. I, I think we're still suffering from a mentality that relates to the outside world as hostile. And I'm not saying that there aren't hostile forces in the world, there certainly are. But I think that, as I said before, we need to switch from defense to offense. And we need to really think about the world we want to see, the world that can exist. Maybe to put it Simply, I would say that Israel came back to life in order to lead mankind into a post-capitalist world. Well, okay. Um, let's move on to the Palestinians. Well, I would say that regarding the Palestinians, you know, I've read a couple of your books and I want you to know that I haven't read letters to my Palestinian neighbor. And it's on my shelf. Someone gave it to me a couple of years ago but I'm honestly hesitant to read it, uh, partially because of my own work with Palestinians, you know, makes me a little too close to the subject. But also, I think it's because as much as I think, you know, you don't need me to tell you what a talented author you are. I'm sure that you know what your talents are, and you have a tremendous gift, in my opinion, for really expressing the feelings and aspirations of the Jewish people's collective soul. 
And if I were to offer you one criticism for whatever it's worth, it would be my constant disappointment with your political conclusions. And I, and I hope you don't mind me saying, wow. uh, but I've often experienced when reading your work, I've often experienced a very sharp disconnect between your incredible ability to reach deep into the depths of Jewish collective memory and national consciousness on the one hand, and your support for a two-state solution on the other, something that would rob us of the very heart of our country. Well, let me, let me um, say a few, few sure. things. Uh, one is that I'm a very reluctant supporter of a two-state solution. And by that, I mean that I take very seriously our claim to Judea and Samaria. For me, it's not the West Bank. It's certainly not occupied territory. And I don't only say that to you. I say it when I speak to Palestinians. And I think it's very important for Jews to say that to Palestinians. And uh, specifically, uh, that I believe that all of the land between the river and the sea belongs to the Jewish people. It's ours. Uh, at the same time, there's another people sitting as you know. And I have not heard any solutions that make sense in the way that guarantees a Jewish majority and a democratic country. I think that all the solutions that I've heard from the right are um, sleights of hand. They're, um, they're, they're, they're I agree. Formulas. You're, you're they're absolutely formulas. correct. Yeah, they're formulas that, that yeah. we, the Jewish people, would never live with if we were offered them. And I'm not, uh, and I'm very afraid of confederations and any, any kind of, of uh, framework that would weaken Jewish majority sovereignty over part of this land uh, and weaken our ability to defend ourselves and define ourselves. Okay. Uh, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, what, what goes on in the Knesset, where, where you only have 20% Arab representation, uh, what would it be like if we had 40 or 45%, even if we were to maintain a slender majority? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't see an and I say this with tremendous regret. That's that's why I'm that's why I call myself a centrist mm -hmm. because uh, I don't want a two-state solution. I don't want to leave uh, most of Judea and Samaria. Uh, I desperately fear the security consequences of the Palestinian state, but I I fear the alternative just a little bit more. Okay, so I, I'm going to present an idea, and I'd really like your feedback on it. Go ahead. I've been working with Palestinians for roughly 11 years. Uh, it actually started by accident. I was living in a Palestinian neighborhood of Jerusalem, Russell Amud, for four years as someone who came in to strengthen the Jewish presence, as somebody who came in to strengthen our hold on Jerusalem, to prevent it from being divided. And the side effect of this was that I got to know my neighbors. And I was always against the two-state solution. That, that was never an option for me. I think it's, if anything, a barrier to peace. Just based on my interaction with Palestinians, I don't think it really meets either of our aspirations or grievances. I think it lacks political creativity. I find it to be agenda-driven by those who just want Israel to be a Western outpost in the Middle East. And most importantly, I think it's an escape from wrestling with some of the very real challenges we have to confront. Most importantly, the role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society in the 21st century. So, so what, is your, what is your alternative? I think right now, what we essentially have is a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations. 
And those Jewish decorations are way too Jewish for the Palestinians. And they're not Jewish enough for the Haredi community. And the Haredi community is important because I think when we have these conversations, we need to take the country's socio-political trajectory into consideration. And according to all accounts, I don't think there's anyone who disagrees that the Haredi community is the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. And therefore, they're important. So give me an idea of okay. what more Jewish mm-hmm. and favorable uh, country would look like to be more, more amenable to the Palestinians. Right. So I think the problem with our state right now is that the Jewish character is too hard and too shallow. And I wanna do just the opposite. I think that the Jewish character of our state should be much deeper than it is right now, but at the same time, much softer. To the extent that it's a Jewish state, it's a one state solution with full equality between the river and the sea, including Gaza. And that the more Jewish literacy a person has, the more they will see and experience the Jewishness of the state in all of the policies and institutions. And the less Jewish literacy a person has, the more they'll just experience the state as a democracy where they have full equality. My friend Yehuda, what does it look like for Palestine? Like I said, a democratic state where they have full equality, where there's nothing that I have that they don't because I'm a Jew and they're not. In fact, more so, I I would even go a step further. Right now, if I were to work on Yom Atzma'ut, or if you were to work on Purim, we would earn time and a half, right? In terms of our wages, we would earn time and a half. Now, there are a lot of people in this country who are not Jews, and they have their own holidays. I would support a law that says anybody who works on the Jewish holiday gets time and a half, and anybody who's not Jewish gets time and a half also on their own holidays, meaning that there would be more days in the calendar that... Wait, wait. before we go into time and a half, do Palestinians have the vote? Yeah, of course. And if a majority... If, if there's a majority Palestinian between the river and the city, mm-hmm. they have the right to vote for a Palestinian prime minister in the country. They have, the right, they have the right to vote out the law of return and substitute well, it. One, one thing at a time. Palestinian, uh, right of return. Palestinian prime minister, I don't have a problem with. I don't think a prime minister is a king. A prime minister is a manager. Just like Sir Herbert Samuel, who was the first British high commissioner for Palestine, was a Jew. But I would never regard the time period when Sir Herbert Samuel ruled our country as Jewish sovereignty. That was British sovereignty with a Jewish manager. And by the same token, I would say a Jewish state with a Palestinian prime minister would be a Palestinian manager of a Jewish political system. Listen, it's it's sophistry, I'm sorry. Tell me concretely, the majority of Palestinians uh, vote to do away with the law of, of return and substitute it with a Palestinian right of return. First of all, those are two different questions. Do they have that right? It's two different questions. We do need to have a conversation about the Palestinian refugee issue, and we do need to find solutions that cause Palestinians to feel satisfied with the outcome. But the truth is, I'll be honest with you, Yossi, I get the sense you're not really listening to what I'm saying, and you're just like looking for flaws. You right. just said that the Palestinians will have every right that you have. Yeah. Palestinians want a right of return for the refugees, mm-hmm. and they don't want a Jewish right of return. Do you agree with that? No. That's my experience. That's your experience. The experience I've had with Palestinians 
is that the concept of Jewish state has been extremely oppressive. The Jewish state that they've experienced up to now is essentially a settler colony crushing them every day. That's their experience of Jewish state. So if you ask a Palestinian or you poll Palestinians and say, do you support a Jewish state? Of course, they're going to say no, because the only Jewish state they've experienced has been an oppressive state in the land that they were in before we came back. So I think that we need to change the way they experience us and we need to change the way we experience them. I think part of let me rewind for a moment because we're talking about policies that I've, you, I've been asking you a very straightforward question and you keep giving me philosophy. I apologize for the fact that you think I'm avoiding your question. I'm actually trying to present a paradigm shift and maybe I'm doing a bad job. So let's rewind for one second because the way I understand narratives and I think narratives are important is a collection of facts that are, first of all, selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. Meaning we and the Palestinians have been living in two completely different stories for the last hundred years. And I don't think either of us are lying when it comes to our own stories. I think both of us have been telling the truth when it comes to our own experiences, but both of us have been getting it wrong when it comes to the other. Instead of actually engaging the other, we've been fighting our fantasy antagonists which even leads to counterproductive methods of struggle. I think one of the reasons this conflict continues the way it does is because we're not even really fighting who the other actually is or how the other sees himself. We fight our fantasy of who the other is and therefore use methods of struggle that won't work. Uh, I think BDS is a great example of that. And many Israeli policies, especially in the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, that force Palestinians to live under a military bureaucracy. Now, I think that any real conversation about moving forward has to unpack the grievances and aspirations of both peoples, really identify what each of us needs to feel like winners in the story we're living in. In my experience, and it's possible that you've had different experiences and it could be we're talking to different Palestinians, but my experience is that the concept of a nation state is perceived by most Palestinians as a European social construct that was imported here by the British and French. It could be a means to an end, it could be empowering, it could be a way to achieve equality and rights, but it's not the only way. I think the, the idea of a nation state, and I assume you'll agree with me, is a deep aspiration for the Jewish people. Meaning for the last 2000 years, we told ourselves we're going to return to Jerusalem and we're gonna have political sovereignty. That's been a driving force for us. It's something we speak about under every chuppah, at every Pesach Seder, at every Brit Milah, every Tisha B'Av. Like this is one of the themes of Jewish history for the last couple thousand years. So I don't think we can be winners in our own story if we don't have political independence in the land of Israel. Now, I haven't experienced that with Palestinians, not with Marxist Palestinians, not with more Islamic oriented Palestinians. I, I have not seen their relation to the nation state as something that is as deep or as important as it is with the Jewish people. But I do think there are things that are important to them. One of them you mentioned a few times, the refugee issue, I think that definitely does need to be addressed. Another is that they feel dignified and equal in society. They can't feel like they're second-class citizens because they're not Jews. And I think until now, their conception of a Jewish state or their experience of a Jewish state has been one in which they are second-class. And I think that in many ways, the Palestinians are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis. For the last 53 years, we came back in 1967 and we said, 
you know, this is the cradle of Jewish civilization. These are the places we've been dreaming about for thousands of years, Bethlehem and Hebron and Beit El and Shiloh and, and Jerusalem, and we're back. But on the other hand, the Americans and the Europeans don't want us here. But on the other hand, we need the mountains to defend our most densely populated centers. But on the other hand, we have all these non-Jews here, what are we gonna do with them? So for the last 53 years, we've done nothing and we've done everything and we've pretended to do one thing, but we've really done something else. And you know, Palestinians living under all of that don't necessarily know all of the internal Jewish politics that drive us in so many directions. The disunity, as you said in the beginning of our, of our program, I think that most Palestinians just experience us as oppressors and liars. And I really do believe that the most Jewish approach, reaction to tochacha, to, to rebuke, to criticism, is introspection. And I think the Jewish people, maybe because of our traumatic experiences, have a very natural defense mechanism or a defensive posture when people criticize our policies. And the truth is, when I hear a lot of the criticisms aimed at the Jewish people and the Jewish state by Palestinians and their advocates, I'm hearing a divine message. I'm hearing the Kadosh Baruch Hu tell us something about the way we're behaving. And I don't think the way we treat Palestinians today is the way in which non-Jews should be treated in Jewish society. But part of the problem is we haven't even had that conversation. Much of what you're saying, I agree with. Mm -hmm. But here's the fundamental difference between us. The more I listen to you, the more sharp the difference becomes. Okay. And that is that I see politics as the arena of the possible mm -hmm. and of working within the limitations of a flawed and unredeemed world. And that comes very deeply out of my reading of the 20th century, uh, this dread of of uh, merging utopian longings uh, with, uh, with politics. I have my utopian longings. I am a messianist, but I keep them very much confined within a religious uh, structure. Uh, you want to bring your utopian longings into, as you would put it, the real world. I don't trust political movements. I don't trust political ideas. Um, I am trying to figure out what the best way is to deal with reality on its own terms, because that's the meaning of politics, the meaning of a nation state, not to impose ideology on reality, mm -hmm. but the opposite. I'm imposing reality on ideology. And so when I call myself a centrist and, and support, however reluctantly, the two-state solution, what I'm trying to do is, uh, is figure out what is the best possible way that we can deal with reality. Now, you mentioned earlier that Zionism ended in 1967. Mm -hmm. And certainly for much of the religious Zionist world, Classical Zionism did end in, in 1967. And that's been one of the great, to my mind, one of the great tragedies of the state of Israel because classical Zionism was the way of pragmatism. It was the way of trying to figure out what's the best deal we could get in this world. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I both grew up in, uh, in the maximalist Zionist camp. Uh, I went, as you did, from Beitar to the JDL. Uh, I wore around my neck a map, not just of 
Yudel Vishomron. I had a necklace that was Shtegadot Nehen. I had Jordan on there for years. And, uh, and, and then you suddenly start to realize that, wait a minute, maybe the bad guys in, in, the, uh, in the story of Zionism, Mapai and uh, the labor Zionists, maybe they were actually right. Maybe if the revisionists had been in control of Zionism, uh, maybe we would have never gotten a state. And, uh, and so I, I come very much to the conclusion that we can't impose um, vision uh, entirely on, on politics. Now, obviously, to some extent, we do impose vision on reality. Zionism is, was a visionary movement, but Zionism was a very interesting visionary movement. It was a visionary movement that constantly checked itself, at least mainstream Zionism, constantly checked its utopian impulses. It was driven by utopian impulse, but its implementation was not utopian. And so, Yehuda, when I hear talk about, about messianic vision and our purpose in the world, and we start applying it to borders and the Palestinians, and we start playing with the basic structure, what has kept the Jewish people safe for the last 70 years, what has allowed us to protect ourselves, what has allowed us to, to maintain a sovereign state and gather the exiles. When you start playing with that, that's when every alarm goes off mm -hmm. and you can say you're not Gusha Munim and that's fine, but this is the camp you're coming out of. This is the, it's the sensibility you're coming out of. Even mm -hmm. if you have a different approach, you have a different configuration, in the end Yehuda, it's the same sensibility. First of all, I definitely am coming from the worldview of the Rav Cook camp. I don't deny that. I just happen to be one of them who speaks to Palestinians and studies post-colonial and revolutionary theory. I think we forced the British to leave, but in some ways we just put a Jewish flag over a British colonial system and called it a Jewish state. I don't know how familiar you are with the writings of Franz Fanon or, or post-colonial studies in general, but I think every nation that liberates itself and its land needs to undergo a post-colonial conversation. A kalvachomer, even more so for a nation that has been exiled from its land for 2000 years. And we're already over 70 years into independence, but Israel still needs to have that conversation, not only for our sake, also for the Palestinians, because like I said before, they're very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis. And uh, I really do, I appreciate this conversation. I hope it's been good for you uh, because this has been good for me. One of my concerns with your approach, and uh, I hear your concerns of mine, but one of my concerns of your approach is it seems to relate to our political situation as something static. You talk about what's realistic, what's possible in the moment, but Israeli society is extremely dynamic. As I said before, the Haredi population is the fastest growing population in the country. And when Haredim become nationalists, they become Kahanistim. You know, Rav Mike Foyer is a friend of mine and I heard your interview with him last week. And one thing you said that I found very interesting was this idea of Rav Meir Kahana being a, a radical theologian. And I actually think you give him a little bit more credit than I do because I see Kahanism as simply Haredi Torah combined with nationalism. Rav Kahana himself learned Torah at the Mir Yeshiva which is a very prestigious Haredi institution, and he combined that approach to Torah with the European-style nationalism promoted by Zev Jabotinsky. 
And I think it's very important because when the Haredim enter Israeli society, they're going to naturally become Kahanistim or soft Kahanistim. And that means we have a certain window of time to create a reality where Jews and Palestinians are protagonists in the same story and not antagonists in each other's stories. Because if we don't succeed in doing that before the Haredi population grows to the point of being a dominant force in Israeli society and being able to demand a defense ministry and naturally gravitating towards a Kahanist approach to politics and diplomacy, I think that the Palestinians are gonna be in a lot of trouble. I um, look, you know, it's uh, you've you've raised some interesting ideas. You're you're clearly thinking out of the box, and that's uh, that's uh, we need that. And uh, and you're trying to uh, to do something new, and I, I appreciate that. And we'll uh, we'll uh, agree to disagree about the details. Okay, Yossi Klein Levy, thank you so much for being with me. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate the challenges. I really do respect your writing, your thinking, and uh, it was a really great experience for me. Thanks for having me. Be well. Take care. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, please go subscribe to Vision Magazine on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you listen. And again, please leave us a rating and review because that can really help us get our message out to a much wider audience. And of course, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of The Next Stage, please reach out by contacting us through visionmag.org just by clicking contact on the menu bar up top. You can check out the show notes for this episode at visionmag.org backslash the next stage four zero.